eternal punishment for anyone who opens this podcast. I heard that. The following presentation is intended only for immature audiences. You have read the curse. Yeah, but uh, I think you ought to know. We tend to drop a few F-bombs in this podcast. Forget about it! Good heavens, what a terrible curse. Hi there, and welcome to the Hansel and Gretel Code. Yeah, Christisch, y'all. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. This here is episode 24. Come on, y'all. Let's do this. In our last episode, we watched a few home movies of Hansel as he set off on the hero's journey. And so uh, there he was, little guy picking up pebbles under the light of the moon. And then we learned that his true name is intuition. Uh, interesting. And, uh, oh yeah, we also found out that he's got two other names. What are they? Jake! Elwood! Hey, buy you boys a drink? Hey, I did mention moonshine somewhere along the line, didn't I? Part one. Teil eins, in which we flip a coin and come up with a new definition for AI. All we need to do is make sure we keep talking. Oh my god. Well, today we're going to get started examining Hansel's, uh, stones. Uh, you mean balls? Uh, no, just those moon rocks he collected. All right, if you say so. Anyway, just so you know, those stones, they hold so much valuable information, it's going to be very hard for me to summarize which means it's going to take us about five or six episodes to go through it all. Wow. And while none of it is all that complicated, it does get pretty busy. Okay. All righty then. Let's get started with just the tiniest bit of elaboration. We don't need to go all Baroque. Not yet. Remember the big picture? With Hansel doing his work by moonlight? No. All right, well, let me just remind you which part of the story we're dealing with by giving you the Grimm's version of events. The moon shone brightly, and the white pebbles which lay in front of the house glittered like real silver pennies. Hansel stooped and stuffed the little pocket of his coat with as many as he could get in. Now, naturally, this tells us it's nighttime. Oh, I think very much, Captain Obvious. And what I mean is it's a literal and logical conclusion, right? Maybe. 
Oh, relax. It's not a trick question. It's just nighttime. And by using your intuition, you also know that nighttime is something other than, or shall we say in addition to, the time between sunrise and sunset. No, it's not. Hey, hang on for a second, okay? This is important. We're not throwing away logic here. All I'm saying is that your intuition knows there's something more to this than meets the eye of logic. This is repetitive. I know. We've been over this before. So, let me put it this way. Using your intuition means looking at the other side of the coin represented by any set of literal, logical, empirical facts. And in this case... It metaphorically includes those silver coins the Grimms decided to throw into the mix. Using your intuition means looking at what our culture considers the non-rational side of things. And by non-rational, our culture tends to push the more pejorative term of irrational. Eh, but let's not quibble. Let's just go ahead and turn over this particular coin. See, we're not getting rid of or denying the logical side of things or the validity of empirical logic, but we are ignoring it, even while we're still holding on to it. What are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about the way real intuition works. See, an intuitive will have no problem turning the coin back over and acknowledging logic. Funny enough, that's how you can tell when someone's either stuck in woo-woo land or simply pretending to be intuitive. For that crew, everything always comes up tails. Who cares? Hey, I get it. But I think it's important to realize that so very few people actually understand what intuition is and how it works. And uh, not just in this zeitgeist. This fairy tale was written a couple of centuries ago by someone who understood that most people were practically clueless about intuition. And our fairy tale author pretty much felt the same way about it as I do. Are you kidding me? Hey, I kid you not. So what do we see on the intuitive, metaphoric, non-rational side of this nighttime coin that's worth even a minute of anyone's time and attention? Well, I don't know. Well, instead of a single, sharply defined, logical definition of night, which uh, itself can get logarithmically complex, you know, if we were to bring in astrophysics and astronomy and get all scientific about it? Please, don't do that. Yeah, well, intuition gives us a different kind of complexity. The kind of wild holographic complexity that's sometimes represented by the craziest of two-dimensional mind maps. In other words, intuition gives us the kind of disparate imaginative ideas that are typical of brainstorming. And that's because brainstorming is actually an activity of intuition. Oh, really? 
Really? See, a mind map with nighttime at the center, it would have all sorts of ideas going off in different crazy directions. But they'd all be connected in a kind of bizarre intuitive web made by some drunken metaphoric spider. Oh, wow, man. Yeah, it's kind of like the way I keep going off in different directions when telling you about this story. And I know from personal experience that this way of presenting information, it would send an engineer up the tree. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Now, granted, not all of those directions will prove to be valuable. Because intuitive value actually depends on the context. And the intuitive side of any coin can only be cached, uh, so to speak, in its proper context. Which is why you can ignore or throw out most of the ideas that come up in a brainstorming session. It's not that they don't have any intrinsic value. They just don't fit the time, the place, the circumstances, and the story you're working with. So, one of those intuitive ideas concerning nighttime is that it can represent the unconscious. And isn't this somewhat ironic, since we've already spoken about forest and sea as being symbolic of the unconscious. Now, we've got another symbol for it. Night. Now, logic is bound to ask which one is correct, because that's a legitimate logical question. Intuition, though, it can hold all three possibilities simultaneously. And because it also holds on to logic, it can legitimately understand that forest and sea are directions that don't need to be explored right here. They're not incorrect. They simply don't hold the same value in this context. So, from this one small detail, we can intuitively surmise that Hansel is doing his work in the unconscious and the unconscious of the whole person that's represented by this family. Who's that? Well, it's really the unconscious of anyone who's going through some sort of crisis and has rejected what Hansel and his sister represent. Namely, two of the four cognitive functions of consciousness, intuition and feeling. And as I've already implied, this family by splitting itself in half, it's also symbolic of a culture in crisis. A culture that denigrates and despises the kind of people that might be associated with these siblings and with those two functions of consciousness. And what I mean is, people that the culture considers useless, impractical, irrational, or even parasitic, and therefore expendable. Don't take it personally. It's just my job. And because we're talking about the denigration of intuition and feeling, this is the sort of stepmotherly attitude and behavior that practically defines modern Western society. (laughs) Right. All right. Well, let's not push too hard in that direction. Not right now. For now. Let's just think about our fairy tale family as an individual person. See, 
Right now, we're just following the thread of a story that's already at work within everyone's unconscious. And by doing that, we're helping to bring its intuitive implications back into consciousness. That is, to everyone's attention. It's for the better. Yeah, it really is. So, I gotta admit, this isn't all my idea. Uh, excuse you. It's an understanding and an activity that was stimulated by my own reading of Jung. (laughs) What a waste of time. Well, the good news is that all of Jung's work emphasized his original finding, that something within us is constantly working to ensure our own wholeness. And, uh, what do you know? Our intuitive reading of the story of Hansel and Gretel sees that very same thing happening. Now, intuitively, each of the tiny metaphoric tidbits of symbolism and meaning we've so far collected are exactly the same as Hansel's tiny pebbles. And each of them provides some small bit of information we can use to get back to the truth of our own wholeness. Now, more than just identifying with or despising the various members of the Holzhacker family, who uh, each represent various parts of our own human nature, we've actually been doing the very same things they've all been doing. Metaphorically, of course. Oh, is it metaphor? Oh, I thought it was meant three. <laughs> so that means it's even more expensive. Oh my god. Oh my god. <clears throat> Remember that these four characters represent the four cognitive functions of consciousness. Thinking, feeling, sensation, and intuition. And the very premise of the story, deliberately losing the two children in the forest, well, that amounts to a dissociation. Metaphorically, this is someone denying the validity, the necessity, and practically even the existence of two of those functions. This decision to lose them in order not to have to feed them, well, it's the crux of a serious matter, because metaphorically it means not just paying them no mind or giving them no attention, but actively doing something to get rid of them. It represents an attempt to force them down into the unconscious, that is, to repress or forget all about them. But that's something we all do. No way! Oh, not maliciously. And for the most part, not even consciously. I'm pretty drunk. Like two sides of our metaphoric coin, Two of those functions will always tend to be on one side, while the other two will naturally be on its opposite. And if face-up corresponds to consciousness, and face-down corresponds to unconsciousness, guess what? What? Our typology and personality preferences? They're more of a coin flip than we might realize. Now a lot sounds like really bullshit. Yeah, well, it makes no sense to divide a coin as if it were an Oreo. Or even to insist on one side always being superior to and 
better than the other. But uh, that's how we roll, especially under stress. Now, of course, there are even advantages to this dissociative behavior. Like someone who loses their eyesight and develops a much keener sense of hearing. More importantly, this is how science and technology evolved. Removing the subjective feeling function and the predictive intuitive function from all empirical experimentation and observation, well, that amounted to blindfolding them and locking them away somewhere. But uh, all in a good cause. Unfortunately, we seem to have uh, lost sight of the disadvantages of this blindfold, not to mention of keeping them locked away. By denying our subjectivity and the validity of feeling and emotion, not to mention the validity of intuition, we've become more like the computers that science and technology have gifted us. But computers will always be better at empirical, logical functioning than humans, precisely because they're not influenced by feeling and intuition the way our brains are. Of course, the example of HAL in 2001 Space Odyssey, that's meant to be a warning against the hubris of science, since nothing goes into a computer except what we humans put there. And that's why our unconscious feelings and intuitions are all eventually bound to sneak in. In fact, come to think of it, AI, it could, and probably should, stand for artificial intuition. Because I think that's what it's trying to do. Make intuitive connections for us. The AI does the brainstorming and then weeds out all the ideas that don't fit the algorithms that its uber-logical programmers have tried to substitute for context. Hey, why else would you see an ad for birdseed on your Twitter feed, right after you show off pictures of your pet canary? In any case, as I keep repeating, Hansel returning home with his sister is a basic metaphor for the reconciliation and recollection of all four functions of consciousness. Thinking, feeling, sensation, and intuition. Acknowledging this metaphor, that the coin of our personality has two sides, well, that amounts to an act of reconciliation and recollection. And denying this for any reason, well, that's the basis of any and all Cults of personality. Fascinating. From the point of view of logic and the five senses, that is, our thinking function coupled with the sensation function, metaphorically represented by the combination of father and mother, this recollection not only can't remedy the situation of famine, but will actually make things worse. And come to think of it, it's a perfectly logical, Probably even correct conclusion, isn't it? Yeah. Adding back those two extra mouths to feed, especially after it was hoped they would be eliminated, that may be a legitimate moral duty for the parents, but it's also an objectively empirical, physical hardship. 
keeping the children would actually mean that, given the likely continuation of the famine, the numbers just wouldn't add up. Got that right. Now, the moral standards of our zeitgeist may not condone such a literal acting out of these selfish plans, but quite obviously, the economic standards embraced by our culture, and I don't just mean Western culture, but the new global economic standard, it's got adequate room for them. Certainly. Hey, we all know what that means. Profits before people. And if it's good for business, it's good enough. All right, well, that's, uh, that's good enough for me. Uh, it's close enough. Uh, <laughs> Morals, of course, have nothing to do with logic. Even if our current culture practices its own proprietary mixture of the two. But it's important to remember that child abandonment, even in times without the stress of famine, was considered far less problematic, morally, ethically, and logically, in medieval times and earlier. In other words, context and zeitgeist influenced the very measure of morality. So, are we mixing apples and oranges here? Yep. Yeah, well, you're probably right. Talking about coins and functions and then diving back into the story with its famine and its pebbles, it must be pretty confusing. And mixing metaphors, it's definitely a problem. But you see, the real problem is that we live in a society, culture, and zeitgeist doesn't recognize itself in the story of Hansel and Gretel. For good reason. Yeah, well, if you and I persevere in collecting these pebbles and examining them in this seemingly helter-skelter, intuitive manner, we might just shake something pretty valuable out of this work and accomplish a potentially healing recognition. Sounds interesting. So... It's still too early for this sort of recognition, especially since we haven't seen enough of her in action. But it's more than likely that the mother represents sensation. That is, the conscious testimony of the five senses. What? The sensate function of consciousness is concerned with physical comparison and physical measurement. It doesn't make any judgments. It simply produces utterly objective, empirical data. That's correct. Its basic job is to distinguish and measure things by virtue of the differences apparent to any or all the five senses. It compares and contrasts. We could say it runs the department of weights and measures in our brain. Although that's still a bit simplistic. And none of these functions are perfectly simple to understand or simplistic in nature. As I said, it's still too early to recognize her as the sensate function. In fact, just as they do in fairy tales, these four functions, they'll often show up in dreams. And I gotta tell you, whenever they do, it's usually very difficult to identify which function is represented by which symbol. But if our hypothesis is correct, and this woman really does represent sensation, 
it would mean that the father represents logic and the thinking function. Now, right now, one thing is perfectly clear. The father represents the so-called dominant function. And we can say that because he's the one who has the final say in the matter of the children. The mother is, more obviously, the so-called auxiliary function. And we can say that because she doesn't have the power to enforce her will unilaterally. She has to persuade the father to say yes to her plan. Now, this, of course, makes the children the inferior coupling of functions. Which of them represents the actual inferior function? which uh, in Jungian circles is otherwise known as the shadow? That may not be so very important to decide right now, although it's highly likely that it's the little girl who is the true shadow, because she's the one who ultimately saves the day. I'm not a little girl. See, this happens very often in fairy tales. Shadow often shows up as a dumb Hans or a goose girl. Somebody like Cinderella, who's forced to do all the housework and never allowed to dress up and meet the prince. And that fairy tale motif of the shadow as hero or heroine, that's a clear reminder that reconciling with our own shadow, it can produce very practical, even magical, miraculous results. Nice. 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 Johnny, is this true? Because if it is... Part 2 Teil 2 In which we dabble a bit in astrology and alchemy and end up tossing our moon rocks into a pond. And our cookies? Our stones! You know, kerplop. Gotcha. Okay, let's get back to picking up on the details of these stones. What can we make of the connection between moonshine and these little white pebbles looking like silver coins? (laughs) I don't don't know. (laughs) Logically, of course, not a single damn thing beyond some operatic stage lighting. But as I've already said, once we get beyond the threshold of once upon a time, logic is no longer in the driver's seat. Intuition is driving this bus. And the aim of intuition is to see the metaphoric connections between things. Especially when logic dictates there aren't any. Now, I always say that astrology is a set of training wheels for exercising your intuition. So, let's start with the astrologically obvious. In astrology, the moon is a symbol of maternity. And in the context of our story, the moon might even refer to a more sympathetic mother than the seeming imposter the children's old man is married to. The moon could symbolize a sort of kindly celestial being, or maybe even a spiritual mother, if not a kind of fairy godmother. In Madame Donois' Finette Cendron, 
one of the stories that preceded Hansel and Gretel? The clever daughter goes to her godmother for advice, and the godmother gives her a spool of thread by which she can find her way back home. In the Montana story, the heroine that the stepmother is trying to get rid of, well, she also goes to her godmother for help and advice. So in both cases, we could say that the role of Hansel is pretty much filled by the godmother. And in fact, astrology also connects the moon with intuition. So that makes a hell of a lot of sense. You are hormonally confused. Astrology also connects the moon with the concept of the feminine. And the feminine, that's another aspect of consciousness that sure as hell gets denigrated and deprecated in Western culture. And let me tell you, the feminine, that's something that the story of Hansel and Gretel and the Hansel and Gretel Code It's going to have plenty to say about. Now, in addition to astrology, we also have the testimony of alchemy, something we've already mentioned in episode 23. Remember? No. Uh, right. Well, along with astrology, alchemy is another, even more elaborate type of intuitive practice. And in alchemy, the moon is associated with silver, salt, and the color white. So, in their glistening by moonlight, it should be obvious that these pebbles are not so secretly connected to the moon and maternity. And then the Grimms doubled down on that symbolism by adding the business of those silver coins. So you gotta think, it's almost as if they wanted to emphasize an intuitive connection to alchemy. Bollocks, just bollocks. Well, in any case, symbolically and metaphorically, Hansel's moon rocks are connected to an awareness of astrologic and alchemical concepts. This, of course, doesn't mean that in order to develop your intuition, you need to concern yourself with such things as astrology and alchemy. But uh, there comes a time when you might find them kind of interesting. You know, just the way a mathematician or physicist gets interested in puzzles and so-called brain teasers. You have losing your mind much. The thing is, unless you do understand more about astrology and alchemy, which is the context in which this metaphor makes so much sense, you're not likely to know about or explore the possible connections. Curiously, though, even if you do, well, so what? This could still be a metaphoric dead end. While we might want to congratulate ourselves for noting such a titillating little astrologic and alchemical connection between the moon and these pebbles, unless we do some more exploring and continue to flesh out the implications of these connections, Esoteric and seemingly woo-woo observations like this, they tell us absolutely nothing. And I mean nothing. And yet, these little white pebbles are metaphoric gems. But taken like this, in isolation, that would be like dropping them in a pond, 
one pebble at a time. They'd give us nothing more than a minor ripple on the surface, and each pebble, along with its meaning, would simply disappear. Now, fortunately, we've got a lot of pebbles here. So let's continue our little meditation of picking them up and dropping them in, and see if we can't find some more substantial and satisfying meaning. Maybe we can turn this meditation into something more like Basho's big splash of a haiku. I really like Allen Ginsberg's interpretation of Basho. The old pond, a frog jumps in, kerplop! Part 3 Teil 3 In which we say a few prayers, make a few comparisons, and see how music from the 60s measures up to music from the 80s. Not. You know what I think? I said this before, but I think that anybody who disagrees with me is just a fucking bitch. I mean, really. Oh, brother. One meaningful connection worth noting between these pebbles, the moon, and maternity, it's an obviously religious one. Specifically, the connection between these stones and the Catholic rosary. The Catholic Encyclopedia entry on the rosary, it tells us, A certain Paul the Hermit in the 4th century had imposed upon himself the task of repeating 300 prayers according to a set form every day. To do this, he gathered up 300 pebbles and threw one away as each prayer was finished. That's not funny. Yeah, it may not be funny, but it certainly sounds intriguing, doesn't it? No, sir. All right, well, you might have a point there. Since it may just be a titillating little nothing, kind of like our astrologic and alchemical references. At least this time, though, it's closer to something that a few more people tend to be familiar with. Namely, the rosary and Catholic prayer. So what? Now, the source of this information in the Catholic Encyclopedia is the Lausiac History a text we came across in the religion section of the library, back in episode 6. Remember? No. Yeah, I didn't think you would. Anyway, Cuthbert Butler, who edited and commented on the Greek manuscripts of the Lausiac history, he notes this passage as the earliest known reference to the practice of what eventually became the Rosary. Now, of course, prayer beads exist in many cultures, but this history of the so-called Desert Fathers, it gives Hansel's pebbles a direct connection to the practice of counting prayers in Christianity. Now, the same entry in the Catholic Encyclopedia tells us, Among the Knights Templar, whose rule dates from about 1128, the Knights who could not attend choir, were required to say the Lord's Prayer 57 times in all. And on the death of any one of the brethren, they had to say the Pater Noster a hundred times a day for a week. To count these accurately, 
there is every reason to believe that already in the 11th and 12th centuries, a practice had come in of using pebbles, berries, or discs of bone, treaded on a string. That's not funny. Of course, the maternal connection doesn't come into play at all, until maybe the 15th century, when Ave Marias got substituted for most of those paternosters. But the connection between picking up stones and praying... That's unmistakable. Oh, yeah. Now, as interesting as that sounds, it's still just as much of a dead end as astrology and alchemy. Unless we can make the kind of interesting connections that logic can really sink its teeth into. For instance, that text, The Lausiac History, it was written by a guy named Palladius around 420 Common Era. And it was part of a very popular book in the Middle Ages, one that would have been known to our author. And not just for whatever factual information it holds. Just paging through the thing, it's obvious that it would have been read for entertainment. Because with its uh, spiritual emphasis on miraculous occurrences, it, like all hagiography, is practically the same thing as a book of fairy tales. But you see, getting logic to appreciate and enjoy snippets like this, it requires an awful lot of digging and searching to find references like the Lausiac history. Which, I might add, I'm only able to read in translation, and thanks to the internet and archive.org. So, here's the thing. I love doing research like this. And I love finding real, solid facts, especially if they pass the academic sniff test. Not everyone's like that. Yeah, yeah, I know. And I realize that you might consider my citing this text as tedious, redundant, and maybe even a waste of time. Yes, sir. Yeah, but you see, one of the underappreciated pleasures of looking up references especially for us metaphoric, intuitive-minded types, lies in finding the comedy material in them. Sometimes it's right there on the surface. Mostly, though, especially with academic sorts of references, it's a matter of reading pretty deeply between the lines in order to get the joke that academics would never be able to see or want to acknowledge. So, as I've said, I've already spent 11 years doing all the heavy lifting involved in research. And I tried my best to organize that information into book form, all the while knowing that eh, it'd probably take me another 11 years to edit that book before I could put it out there in the world. And that is, without boring the crap out of anybody interested enough to try reading it. So. That's why I'm putting it out as a podcast. Editing all of this material for a podcast, well, it's no easier than editing it for a book. In fact, it may even be harder. But at least I don't have to wait 11 more years before I can share it. That said, I really could use the grace of your support in this endeavor. No, no, forget it. Forget it which is why I signed up with that buy-me-a-coffee outfit. You know, ko-fi.com.
So if you want to throw some uh, breadcrumbs my way, that would be awesome. Absolutely not. But just talking up the show and spreading the word about it, well, that's a much appreciated act of grace as well. Oh my God, would you leave me alone? Hey, even just visiting the website is another way to show your support. And, uh, you know the drill. Visit us on the web at www.betweenthelines.xyz. Alrighty. So, there's obviously nothing comical in those portions of the Lausiac history that the Catholic Encyclopedia editors chose to include. And that's why, whether or not you're looking for comedy you're more likely to find some if you can find more of those original lines to read between. And find them, I did. So, for understandable reasons, the Catholic Encyclopedia neglects to mention the fact that this Paul the Hermit guy, he's identified in the Palladius text as Paul the Simple. And I do mean he must have been a bit simple-minded. Really? Paul, he was a rank-and-file member of that group of poverty-loving desert fathers we met back in episode 6. And the Lausiac history tells us that he ran out into the desert after catching his wife in flagrante with a neighbor. Uh-oh. And while that sounds like the beginning of a joke, the really interesting part doesn't come up until he gets himself settled in his desert cave. See, while his claim to fame has mostly to do with the rosary business, his connection to Hansel and Gretel, well, that lies in the fact that he was reportedly afflicted because he heard of a neighboring virgin whose piety greatly exceeded his own. I mean, the guy gets really bummed out by comparing himself to her. And so he complains to his confessor that this virgin lady who, uh, by the way, may have been the first supermodel saint. Well, she not only outdoes him in prayer by reciting 700 prayers a day, she also outdoes him in anorexia, or, I mean, fasting, by eating only on weekends. According to Palladius, Paul said, and when I learned this, I despaired of myself, because I could not make more than 300. Oh, and I suppose you think that's funny, huh? Okay, so my objective is not to point out the silliness of his name, or even to mock the puerile logic of his complaint. Seriously, what seems most striking and relevant here is this affliction arising from the dubious yet common practice of anyone bothering to compare themselves to someone who does what they do, only better? You see, not only is this a problematic projection on his part, but it's that pernicious little concept of better that constitutes a nearly universal problem. I mean, if someone outdoes you in the volume of anything, is that necessarily better? And does that necessarily make you worse? Well, obviously, it makes Polly feel worse. So I ask you, 
more prayers, fewer prayers, more food, more fasting. What does any of this have to do with piety? I don't know. For better or for worse, just what is this affliction our simpleton, or I mean simple saint, has fallen prey to? Honestly, I have no clue. And we can understand that an unfavorable self-comparison wants the immediate cause of his affliction. But what's the existential substance of that affliction? I don't know, mate. He seems to be in pain because of some emotion he doesn't want to experience. But he doesn't, and probably can't even name it. Yes, yes, this is the most important part. Right, right. This is important for all of us. Whatever this emotion is, his confession tells us that it's based on a fundamental activity of his sensate function. Remember? We're talking Mrs. Holtaka here. Paul measured something, and then he used his less-than-sophisticated thinking function to abstract that measurement into meaning something that gave him a nasty nudge from his feeling function. So, which feeling is he having here? Is he sad, mad, glad, or scared? Is he depressed? Is he angry? Is he happy? Or is he anxious? So how should I know? Who even cares? I gotta tell you, whatever the emotion is, he sure seems to be experiencing envy. But uh, isn't that one of the so-called seven deadly sins? Affirmative. Where's piety in all this? I don't know. It seems to me that whatever his distress or affliction is, it amounts to the same sort of chronic poverty our Holzacher family is known for. In other words, it's a chronic shortage of Hansel and Gretel bread, meaning divine grace. And it's another clue to help us figure out what the religious abstraction, known as divine grace, might actually be. Eh, so what's the point of measuring something if all it does is remind you how poor you are? And is this how saints measure their piety and experience grace? By comparing themselves to other saints? Keeping score? I didn't know sainthood was a competition. Why not? Eh, competition seems to be hardwired into us. But is it really the best use of any measuring stick to always have a carrot dangling from the end of it? Even, or maybe especially, if that carrot is divine grace and sainthood. Definitely. Well, maybe it's human nature to compare ourselves to some standard of our own choosing and to want the grace of an experience of success on reaching some particularly outstanding measurement. Then again, is it truly innate? Of course. Uh, you may be right, because obsessively turning everything into a competition that may be an expression of typology. As I said, objective measurement is characteristic of the sensate function of consciousness, and it's possible that people who are driven to compete 
may actually have the sensate function as their legitimate dominant function. But for the majority of us, whose sensate function isn't dominant, competition is more likely to be a learned behavior. Of course, making objective measurement a priority is totally necessary in order to advance science and technology. But even in the purest science, or actually within the psyche of the most objective and unbiased of scientists, the pairing of the sensate function with either thinking or feeling is how those measurements are judged and how the idea of good or bad, right or wrong, better or worse, that's how it gets attached to those objective measurements. Scientists or not, we very often mix up apples and oranges and then tie ourselves into knots, not with the measurements themselves, but with mistaken judgments about them. And what I mean is, our measurements don't always fit the context we judge them within. Take our guy Paul, for example. He thinks that with his 300 pebbles a day, he's measuring his grace and sainthood and piety, and all along, he figured, eh, he was measuring up. You know, he's out there in the desert, and he's got it going on, so uh, good for him. But then, one fine day, he hears his first Madonna tune. What? Uh, sorry, I couldn't help myself there. Uh, <laughs> no, Paul hears about the uh, supermodel virgin, and he starts measuring the difference between himself and her. And all of a sudden, his grace and piety and sainthood, it's no longer adding up. And he starts feeling like a loser. So here's the response the wise and pious confessor gave our poor, afflicted, simple Paul. It's actually pretty funny, but only in terms of irony. The holy Macarius answered him, I am now 60 years old. I make a hundred set prayers and produce my food by my own work and give the brethren the interviews that are there due. And my reason does not condemn me as having neglected my duty. But if you say 300 and are condemned by your conscience, you are clearly not praying them with purity, or else you could pray more, and you don't. What seems to be the problem? Hello! Instead of seeing someone who's got his numbers and his context all mixed up, the holy Macarius sees someone who doesn't measure up because he isn't working hard enough. Oh, man, give me a break. Just like a typical pedagogue, or maybe an evil performance coach, instead of offering constructive criticism, his solution to Polly's problem is to give him a good metaphoric thrashing with a ruler. This exhortation to greater purity, it seems particularly awful because it's too much like telling someone to be healthy when they're sick. And don't get me started, because this mention of conscience 
by an apparently trusted and esteemed authority? Well, that brings us right back to Frau Holzhacker. You see, what Pauli is really after is grace. He's seriously hungry for it. And he doesn't need anyone to tell him when he doesn't have enough of it. What he doesn't understand is why he doesn't have enough. And believe me, neither does the holy Macarius. He hasn't got a clue either. I mean, really, is obtaining grace just a matter of willpower and effort? It may not be wrong to say perhaps, but either it's there or it isn't. Either there's enough of it or there isn't. And if it's built on such a flimsy foundation as the number of prayers or calories that someone counts off every day, and if it crumbles at the first sign of a bad number, it can't be the real deal. Why the fuck not? See this comparison business? That makes Paul just another spiritual Mr. Olympia wannabe who's nothing more than a runner-up in the prayer and fasting competition and a very pedestrian loser in the race for grace. And what I mean is, the real McCoy's something else that grace actually represents. Grace cannot be a simple matter of competition and comparison. And yet it seems to be a neurotically perverse judgment common to most societies and cultures that human beings who take this route to grace and fail at it? They're either not doing enough of something supposedly good, or they're doing too much of something supposedly bad. Damn this good shit! Fuck! <clears throat> of course, whatever those good or bad activities are, this kind of prescription amounts to a cruel and perverse joke. Because even winners suffer from a subjective lack of grace. Hey, in the case of Hansel and Gretel, we're going to see the little brother and sister eventually triumphing and finding grace beyond measure. But not because they know how to count or because they compare themselves to anybody. Grace that's based on comparison is short-lived at best. Because in the long run, that kind of reckoning, it's nothing but a narcissistic pyramid scheme. And to understand that, all you gotta do is remember how Arlo Guthrie once very insightfully put it. You always have a friend who says, Hey man, you ain't got it that bad. Look at that guy. And you look at that guy, and he's got it worse than you. And it makes you feel better that there's somebody that's got it worse than you. But think of the last guy. For one minute, think of the last guy. Nobody's got it worse than that guy. Nobody in the whole world. That guy, he's so alone in the world. Our next episode is pretty brief. It's the prelude to something much more important as we visit a lady's boutique and come away with a few uh, urges. Well, one in particular that will be named later. And maybe we'll be listening to Herman's Hermits 
with a new sort of appreciation. Okay, Boomer. All right, yeah, yeah, ha ha. It's not Henry VIII I'm talking about. It's a new science that Hansel and Gretel introduces us to, and one that can make a huge difference in how we meet the challenges facing Western culture. All righty then. Ciao a tutti. Make it more sarcastic. Not. And louder. Not. Oh, awesome. Forget about it.